You are listening to the Intangibles podcast. Welcome to the latest episode of the Intangibles podcast. Today we have Dr. Christopher Stewart Taylor here with us. He's a Black History professor at the University of Waterloo. And my friend Ray is going to be interviewing him and asking him some questions to enlighten us on how academia works, as well as just how to succeed in, in your career. So, uh, Ray, Chris, can you take it? Hey, good morning, man. How's hey, it going? Good morning. Not too bad. How are you? Thank you for the invitation. I no appreciate problem. it. Thanks for being here uh, this early with us. Um, so before we get started, why don't you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about you before we uh, talk a little bit more about what you do? So I guess I could say I was born and raised in Mississauga, proud of it. Uh, I know a lot of people like to say they're from Toronto, but no, I'm born and raised in Mississauga. Very proud of that. My family is from Barbados. This is very important for me to mention because not just on a personal level, but that actually influences my professional and my academic career too. So I am a proud second generation Canadian of Barbadian parents. I went to school as I said in Mississauga. Big thing for me, and it's interesting now that I'm a prof, but growing up Yes, I did very well in school because my parents were educators, but everything for me in growing up was sports, period, full 100%. stop. I started first playing rep baseball. Long story short, that had to end for a variety of reasons, <laughs> but I was one of the fastest kids on the team. So naturally, when I hit about 10, 11, got into competitive sprinting, uh, Bramley Bullets. I got to give a big shout out to, to Bramley Bullets. Rick Westwood, I'm telling you, I don't know if he's still alive, but if he is and listening to this, hats off to Rick Westwood. And from there, sprinting and track really got me the discipline to to do what I do now. And I say, you know what? And I tell kids all the time too, particularly young black kids and black boys, the whole narrative is don't focus too much on athletics. You know, you got to focus a lot more on academics. I see the two things going hand in hand, that the skills you develop and the discipline you develop playing a high level sport. If you can translate that into academia or your professional career, 100%. you're going to go very far in life. So that in a nutshell is who I am and how I grew up. I was a sport addict, still am now. Big plug to Team X, eat good, get strong, <laughs> big plug. Uh, so that's something that's been with my life, my whole, with me, my whole life. And I see the two skills that you develop in sport and you develop professional work and you develop even in your day-to-day -day organization, going to work and dealing with people that there's a lot of transferable skills that you have. 100%. Well, that's, uh, that's a lot to digest there. And uh, we're proud to have you on the show. And, you know, I just want to know a little bit in your industry. So we, we talk a lot about the finance industry and what we do in, in different financial roles. Um, so getting a little bit of perspective into the academia side of things. Can you tell us a little bit about what it kind of takes to be successful in your line of work? Academia is very interesting. I'm going to pause on that for a second. I want people to think about it. Academia is very interesting because I think a lot of people see academia as just the university. Say, for example, they see it as the fall coming, everybody wearing the nice hoodies, with the names and the Letterman jackets and all that kind yeah. of stuff. You have the professors <laughs> that come week. Frost, <laughs> frost week for some. Um, you see the profs come in with the cardigans and they have the bow ties and all that kind of stuff. And yes, on the surface, that's what it is. However, if you're talking about academia as an industry, academia as a business, it's something very different that I didn't really understand until I got into grad school. 
And even while I was in grad school, I didn't really fundamentally understand it until I got out of academia and looked and looked at it on the outside looking in until I got back into it as a full-time faculty member that I have now. So we see academia as university. We see it as you have a professor that comes in and teaches you from, you know, psychology 101 in a big lecture hall of 1200 students. They have TAs, they may have sort of teaching assistants, they may have three or four teaching assistants and you'd have the marking, they produce a paper, they have four months off in the summer, fantastic. But we don't actually see A, what it takes to get into that industry yeah. or what it takes to stay in. And there's a big, I guess we can call it the publish or die rhetoric that if you're not continually to publish articles or even books, yeah. you are not going to survive in this industry. So to get in it in itself, first of all, and here's the difficult part. If you want to get into academia in a university space, you have to have a PhD, period. Okay. And that, that's a huge commitment. Exactly. Period. This, this, it's not even, okay, I think I might be able to, to flip it and I think I might be able to do it a master's. Yes, you could teach in a college. So what we'd call in, in the U.S. a community college or what we call here a college, something like Sheridan or George Brown. You could teach with a master's, but even those spaces now are looking for PhDs. So step one, just to get into this industry, which is unique, you have to have a PhD. Specifically, when you're looking at history, and I'll never forget this, it takes about, give or take, four to five years to get your undergraduate degree. Yeah. Four to five years. If you're doing co-op, say, for example, where I teach now at the University of Waterloo, five to six years is the norm. And then if you're lucky, you can do a 12-month master's program, or most master's programs are 24 months. So then you have, we're at, what, six, seven years as of now. Yeah. And then on average, to do a PhD in history on average takes about six to seven years wow. on average. Wow. So we're looking at after, you know, you did your K to 12. So kindergarten to grade 12, you're looking at what? 14 years of education. You could be a medical doctor. That's a huge commitment. That's no. a massive commitment. So that's 14 years. there. And then here's a big but to get into this industry. What people don't understand. We think every professor that you have is a quote unquote tenured professor. So a tenured professor is that individual who has worked for a series of time. They most likely published a number of books. And it's and not that common to. Very uncommon to, yeah. particularly in this environment now with a lot of changes, it's very uncommon to have a tenured professor. And those are the folks, again, the cardigans, you know, I teach one course, I have a gazillion TAs, so on and so forth. So most, particularly when you see students in, you know, first and second and third year, most of their, I shouldn't say most, a lot of their professors are sessional professors. Mm -hmm. So sessional professors, essentially a part-time professor. Without getting into too much about how much they get paid, you could teach a course and you're living well below the poverty line. Yeah. And that is a norm. So say, for example, it already took you 14 years to get your PhD. And then on average, this story goes, it takes another seven to 10 years teaching part-time to get a tenure track job. Not tenure. That's crazy. Tenure track job. And then it takes another, on average, four to five years to get tenure. So essentially, if you just you know graduated at 17, and this is what I want folks to understand, and I'm going to give the positives to this too. If you graduated high school at 17 or 18, you're not going to get a full-time job until you're 45 to 50. 
and no, that's that, not unreasonable. I, I don't even, speaking as someone from the finance field, we're very much about instant gratification. You, you get out of university, you want to succeed in two, three, four years. And at, at four years, you're, you're itching for the next opportunity. So I don't even, conceptualizing how you think about this entire industry is, is crazy for me. But, but go on. So I think a lot of people see, you know, this when you talk about this intense gratification, like the movie, like the the Gambler with Mark Wahlberg, yeah. that you're gonna come in, you're gonna graduate, you're gonna get a prof, you're gonna drive a nice M two, whatever he drives in, in that movie, and make a lot of money. No, if you're getting into academia as a research professor, and I'm gonna explain the differences between a research professor, a teaching professor, and a lecturer. You have to be fundamental, particularly if it's in the social sciences or the arts, like myself in history, mm -hmm. you have to be fundamentally committed to what you're going to do and have a passion for what you're going to do. Yeah. But you must have a plan B, C, D, F, and Z. And I think that's, that's huge for all the young kids coming up, having your plan set because you don't know where your career is going to take you. Um, so yeah, go on. How, how did you figure out where you want to take your career so long story short i never planned to do a phd nor did i ever plan to work in academia so my whole big thing similar to how we're talking about with particularly with this podcast folks in finance and whatnot my whole thing was making money and i don't think i'm being a professional and i don't think that something you mean your career is not about making money <laughs> Sorry, my career is not about making money. And I, and I don't think that's uncommon for a lot of people who are second generation, third generation immigrant newcomers, that our parents want us to be doctor, dentist, lawyer, professionals, yeah. engineering, yeah. so on and so forth. Because, you know, understanding how this system and environment works, that if you have a profession, you will succeed in society. Full stop, period. And so my whole thing was, was when I was in my undergrad, I was going to be a lawyer. I was like, cool. I had a summer job for two summers. I was working on Bay Street and I was stacking boxes in a medium sized firm. Mm -hmm. At the time, this medium sized firm, their partners were making something like three to 400,000. I was like, great. I can do this when I'm 26. You'll be there, right? I'm going to be right there. I'm going to roll like that, right? Yeah. And I was like, cool. So I did everything, you know, wrote the LSAT, whole shebang. I ended up getting into McGill because I took French immersion in school. So FY, plug to folks. If you're in school and if you have kids, put your kids in French immersion. Um, it gives you a lot more opportunities and open different doors. So I got into McGill because you have to be quote unquote bilingual to get in. And I was there one day and I, I said to myself, man, I'm 21 or 22 or whatever it was. And I was like, this can't be the rest of my life because I used to see it. The summer students would come in, they work as a summer student, then they're an articling student. And then that's the rest of their life. Yeah. And I'll never forget a day I was there and I couldn't, I was like, what's going on? I used to see summer students wearing the same clothes the next day. I was like, why are you wearing the same clothes the next day? Because I'm thinking you're rolling in money, but they're sleeping in their office. And I told myself, I was like, you know what? I'm not at that point in my life in my early 20s that this is what I want to do. And so I decided, okay, cool. I'm still going to go to law school because I have my parents saying, you got to be a professional. Yeah. But I said, you know what? Let me take this one year to do a master's and do something I'm passionate about, which was at the time when it still is about- Isn't that risky though? Like, It was, and it still is. And then for me, I was passionate about black identity because it's about having an opportunity to learn about who I am. So it wasn't about my career because the career itself was always going to be law school. 
but I figured at this point in my life, taking one year to learn more about me in an academic space and having the time to think and read was very beneficial. Lo and behold, a year later, somebody said, maybe you should do a PhD. And I was like, oh, I'm still young. Yeah. You know, I was looking around at my peers. I'm like, oh, I'm still young. Why not do a PhD? At this time, growing so, up. Sorry, just, go ahead. Just to interrupt you. Yeah. What would you define as young? A lot of our, our people these days in the workforce, they think by the time they're 25, they have to be at the apex of their career or they're doing something wrong. If they're not in their prime, you, you think of an athlete, as you said earlier, yeah. people's prime in, in the workforce is that 25 to 32. Um, how would you tell the kids out there who are thinking that's the prime, that your prime really extends your entire working career? Depends how you define prime. So when I was 17, I didn't see my life past 30. I'm not saying uh, I had. It's not uncommon. It's not, I'm not <laughs> saying I had this thing, you know, I'm going to hit a cliff when I hit 29, but I did not see my life past 30 because at 17, you think 30 is old. You're walking around, oh man, you're 30. Oh my gosh, so old. You're going to die soon. I'm like, whoa. You know That's what I mean? That's what people tell me. <laughs> hey, so, and, and I'll tell you right now for your listeners, I had everything planned out to a T. Yeah. I had everything planned out to a T. I said, okay, if I don't see my life past 30, then I'm 17. I'm going to get my undergrad at 21. And this is where it's very interesting for a lot of young readers right now, listeners right now. I get my undergrad at 21. I do my master's at 22. I get that. PhD, I, as I mentioned before, it takes seven years. But I was like, you know what? I get four years of funding. So FYI to folks out there, while choosing your school is critically important, also look at what school is going to provide you with the most funding opportunities. So I was fully funded. I haven't paid for school since my undergrad. Mm-hmm. My master's was fully funded and my PhD was fully funded. So I had four years of funding. So I said, okay, I'll be graduating by time I'm 25, 26. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to go to law school. That's three years. So by 28, I'm going to have four degrees. Yeah. I'm going to be a superstar. Hmm. I'm going to be LLB, JD, PhD. You can't stop me in life, me. <laughs> I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to be everything. It'd be (laughs) Dr. Christopher Stewart, Taylor, PhD, LLB, JD, whatever. And at the time at McGill, you get an LLB and BCL. So I have like 16,000 letters behind my name. And it was still under this imagined barrier that I had of 30. And I said, okay, cool. When I hit 30, then I'm going to hit the ground running. I'll be rolling in money. Yeah. But then you got to ask a question of yourself what That's is something very clicked for you right you know i wouldn't even say something clicked and so one of the things and i'll gladly share this one of the things that fundamentally shifted my thinking because while i was doing my phd i was still planning on going to law school when i was done mm-hmm. i actually got into a law school overseas and i was gonna go but then my father died suddenly and so for me this fundamentally shifted what was important for me as a person me as a person, as Christopher Taylor, not as Dr. Christopher Stewart Taylor, not as making money, but I understood at that point after someone dies suddenly that time for me, changed. my perspective changed yeah. and time for me was more important than money. And in the space that I'm in right now, I fundamentally value my time. Yeah. Not to say that, you know what? I'm going to live on a commune in some backwoods somewhere and just do whatever. Look, let's be real. We live in a capitalist society. We need money to live. But for me, I said, you know what? There's a certain amount that I want and that I'm going to push for and I'm going to get. But it's a 
diminishing returns so, after that. So would you think that if you were to give some piece of advice that, that, that made you successful in your career and looking at all these stories and, and kind of, would you say that's one of the piece of advice you would give to someone else that's coming up? I would say it's one of the things, but I also say be flexible and yeah. be an opportunist. So once I graduated my PhD, yeah. it was, okay, do I sit and do the part-time teaching for X years with making no money? Mm. Or do I swallow my pride and my ego a little bit and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to be an intern with the government of Ontario, which I decided to do. So you made a flip. I made a complete flip. <laughs> I swallowed my pride and I said, hey, man, I need that biweekly paycheck because, you know, my life circumstances have shifted. And how, how old were you then? I was 26. Okay. 25, 26. Yeah. So complete, So basically my mid-20s when you're talking about, you know, you have to have so everything we, set. We've seen two flips now. I've had a lot of flips. <laughs> and, and, this is, and this is important when I talk about 100%. advice. I think for, for folks listening that you are going to have a lot of shifts at least for me, and I can't tell anybody what to do. I can just provide my own perspective on things. You're going to have a lot of shifts in your life, but as long as you keep on going forward, you'll be fine. Yeah. I think a lot of people shift and they go back and they go back. Sometimes you got to go back to go forward. But for me, I was like, okay, it might be a horizontal move, but eventually that's going to go forward. And so I made that shift. And even folks who are in, the, in my academic circles are like, Christopher, why are you going to be an intern? Right? Yes, it was a paid internship, but like, why are you going to be an intern? I said, look, I can't do this part-time teaching sessional thing indefinitely. So, but the big thing for me, and I think this is where things shift. If you're really passionate about something, it becomes, you have a nine to five, but also your five to 11. Mm -hmm. So my nine to five was working for the government. And I always said, you know, it's going to be a two year internship. And during this two years, I'm going to publish my book. Because one of the big things, if you're getting into academia, particularly this industry and history, you must have a monograph. You must have a book, not publish a couple articles. You have to have a book. And I've had, while I was doing my PhD, I had people give me quote unquote advice at the time. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't do this to say, don't even bother applying for academic jobs unless you have a book. So I said, okay, cool. I have this two year window where I'm working full time, but I have money in my pocket, but I would just you know, bust my behind, work really hard to publish my book. Yeah. And I did do it in that way. Tell me something. When you write a book, just side story, do you actually write every single word of that book? Yes. Or do you write like some concepts and then other people write the book? No, for no, you? I, 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 I'm not that <laughs> level with a ghostwriter. Some yeah. people, hey, to be honest, that's a really good question. So I think a lot of times people say I wrote a book, particularly yeah. celebrities, they wrote a book. They, they have ghostwriters. They have concepts yeah, and they have ghost ideas, writers. and then the writers just yeah. took it from there, yeah. right? Yeah, I couldn't afford a ghostwriter. I, uh, <laughs> I, I was hungry. So you, when you say you wrote a book, you I wrote, a, wrote book. a book. Every single letter ended up being, I think it, it, it builds off my dissertation. I think it ended up being like 400 pages or something ridiculous. That's crazy. And I wrote it because, I mean, for me, it was twofold. I was passionate about it, but also at the same time, too, I knew if I wanted to get in this academic industry, I had to have a book. And so I was doing, I was running parallel careers. So I had one career that was building in the government of Ontario as a, you know, civil servant, mm -hmm. which for me wasn't the goal in life. But yeah. again, coming from, you know, a newcomer family, an immigrant family, civil servant job is one of the jobs, like one of the st stable jobs. It means stability. It means something particularly in colonial, colonized countries. Yeah. So I was going there, I was doing that, I was building, a, I, was, I went it really quickly. If people are looking at it, 
in five years, I went from internship to management yeah. in five years, just like that. However, at the same time, I was running this parallel career in academia. So I got my book published in September 2016, but at the same time, I was still teaching part-time. So I was working downtown Toronto and then teaching in London, Ontario. So I'd be working seven till three, and then from three o'clock, I'd drive to London, teach a night class, drive back, work in the morning. And so if people are looking at, you know, how do I continue to be what I want to be in a market which is bleak right now in academia, it's a very bleak environment. I say, you know what, unless you have family support, spousal support or whatever, you have to be running two parallel games. Yeah. You got to eat. You really have to persevere. You You have have to to push through in the times where you, you might want to give up or you feel like it's too much work or. You know, you can't take an easy road out, basically. Yeah. I literally have that tattooed on my body. Perseverance. You can't take an easy road no, out. No, I literally go. have that tattooed. Okay. <laughs> like, I can't make, I know folks can't see I've been told it. I'm very inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> I just got it tattooed two minutes ago. And so you ha- I had to run that game. And so eventually when this opportunity came up, uh, working full time with the University of Waterloo, I had the government experience, which I was still building up teaching and adult facilitation skills. But at the same time, I had that part-time teaching and I had a book. And so I just kept on building career and even dabbled into politics. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm just building, building, building something when the right opportunity came along. Because as we know, opportunity, you need a bit of luck. You know, you need that preparation and then that opportunity is going to come. Yeah. And so I was building, so building, do you, building. Do you believe in luck or Life do you believe that you make your own luck a little bit? You put yourself in the right situations to succeed. You put yourself in right situations. You right? never close a door. Mm-hmm. Be, and I'm a fundamental believer in an opportunist. But when you are an opportunist, sometimes you bite off a little more than you can chew. And when I look at it in retrospect, driving in the winter to London, Ontario, from downtown Toronto, I was like, how the heck did I do that? Like, I was just in London last week. I was like, man, I used to just do this. Yeah. Pitch black. Yeah. Like, I did it. But I had that goal. I had that push. So, yeah, you're going to need a little bit of a luck, right? You're going to need someone to say, hey, I know Christopher Taylor. He's good at X, Y, Z. Here's an opportunity for him. And even with Waterloo, for me, luckily for Waterloo, I can't even say luckily. For Waterloo, I just applied. Yeah, It was there and it fit every single piece of criteria that fit the skills I had been building in terms of my degree in his- degrees in history, my book, so on and so forth, but at the same time, what I've been building in the government of Ontario. So everything really balanced out for where I was to have that meeting, that meeting point of opportunity, preparation, and luck. Right. Yeah. yeah. So what, what are the types of roles that exist within academia? Like maybe you want to dive into that. Yeah, this is good. So, this is one that people don't understand. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people don't understand is that we think a professor is a professor is a professor. Not the case. Mm. So you have an assistant professor, an associate professor, a full professor, and now a thing that you're seeing a lot more are lecturers. Yeah. So I'm going to do a little technical speak for a I, second I'm kind of getting this for myself as well. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna... <laughs> a lot of CAs going to teaching themselves. Yeah. So, you know, tell me a little bit. So so you can have a full-time job. Yeah. Say, for example, if you're CA, you have a full-time job and you're working at Ryerson or U of T or Rotman or whatever and you'll be a sessional prof. So you have your full-time job and then you teach a course. So you probably hear a lot of the times people teach a course. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you sign a contract, you teach it, you're good, right? Four months, you have one and then you go on for it. 
fantastic. And then you have longer contracts will be like one year contracts where you're teaching for a year. You might have two or three or four courses you teach for a year. That's it. it's like a typical contract anywhere else. Yeah. But then you have, if you say, for example, an assistant professor, what we call a tenure track professor. And that would be something we have a, a load call of 40, 40, 20. Mm. So 40% teaching, 40% research, 20% service. So 40% of your time, you got to do research. So writing books, doing studies, all that good stuff. Yeah. 40% of your time is teaching. And then 20% of your time is service. So say, for example, university committees or whatever. Yeah, okay. That's assistant professor. When you get tenure, which would be after four or five years, you have to put forward a portfolio, make sure you've been publishing. Then you become an associate professor. That's If you're an associate professor, you're full-time. Then you reach the level of a full professor. That means you're a superstar. Yeah. You're good. That's where you're going. <laughs> Trying. So where I'm at right now, and, and there's different streams happening with the, the way the market is shifting. So I'm a lecturer. So I'm, my teaching load is, or my load is 80-20. 80% teaching, 20% service. I love teaching. I fundamentally love teaching. It, it's, as I said, my parents are educators. My, my family is full of educators. And I love it. Right. A lot of people don't really like the teaching aspect. And let's let's be real for our listeners here. You've had that professor that, you know, that did not like teaching. Yeah. They're just there because they had to do it, but they just want to get back to doing what they want to do. I'm the complete opposite. I'm engaged with my students. I'm there with them. We're learning together. I call it contemplative pedagogies that were there when I speak, when we teach and social constructivism, we're learning together. I want them to listen to something. I want them to hold it in them and actually understand how that made them feel and yeah. understand how they're building something. And so with the lecturer stream or the teaching tenure track stream, as some other institutions call it, again, you're on a contract for about five years and then you're full time. Wow. So there's two different streams that you can go into. One is more, quote unquote, lucrative because you have that whole grandeur of being a research professor and all that good stuff mm-hmm. on the other end you know what for me someone who loves teaching going that uh, that direction too is completely fine for me as well and i generally enjoy it so th- when people say i want to be a professor you got to ask yourself am i gonna do i want to teach so you can stay in your industry yeah. say for example a lot of institutions like you mentioned cas you have a full-time job yeah great i want to teach on a wednesday night cool exactly fantastic or so, is that what you want to do full-time yeah and if you were to go back and let's say you can redo anything that you, you did in your life, leading you to where you got now, are there any changes you would make or anything you would revise? No. And I know we don't like playing revisionist history. No. So. I, mean, I know we're not. I know this is not. <laughs> and this isn't Malcolm Gladwell's uh, revisionist history podcast. But yeah. I. Another thing I have tattooed on my body. I have a lot of tattoos, yeah, by there the way. You go. I'm, I'm, I'm an interesting is that, is that Is that tough, being a professor? Are you allowed to have tattoos? Do I don't care. Say, yeah. <laughs> no, hey, we can keep this in. We can keep yeah. this in. We keep this in. I, one of the things that I generally enjoy about academia and these academic spaces, particularly from being in a bureaucracy, yeah. where I was wearing a suit every day, a suit and tie, that what you see me wearing right now, you know, a fitted new air cap, jeans, running shoes, sunglasses, t-shirt is what I wear to class. Oh, do you? Yeah. This is literally the exact same thing you see me wear to class. <laughs> um, for me, it's a space where I can generally be myself. Yeah. And for, for folks out there, it took me a very long time to be. Is that in, controversial a little bit? Of course like, it is. I, I'm full of tattoos, man. I'm full yeah. of tattoos. So folks can't see this. I'm full of tattoos. 
I'm black, FYI. I know we kind of mentioned that I do black history, but I am black. Yeah. Um, I got dreadlocks. Is there like a cultural misappropriation? Like, do, does that ever come up where it's just like for people, other people, people? For me, people have their mis misconceptions. Of course. And, yeah. People think I'm a student. Yeah. <laughs> they were looking at me like, "Oh, you're that student." I'm like, "Uh, no." And it, it always makes me laugh. The first day of class, I never stand in the front of the class. I always just kind of sit back in the hallway, right? Yeah. And kind of listen to how my students are talking. And they're like, yo, I wonder who this prof is. Da, 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 da. And I just walk in, I start teaching. They're like, oh, snap. And what I started to do now, I say, hey, what were your first impressions of me? They're like, I never had a black prof before. Yeah. I didn't think you're the prof. I just thought you're somebody in the class. Yeah. And I know for a lot of people, that is a challenge, particularly folks who, you know, don't. I was fit. just going to say, is that a challenge or a strength? How do you. It's a challenge, but I think for me, it becomes a strength because it kind of fits into what I do because I teach a lot on identity and I teach a lot on critical thinking. Yeah. So I build it into my teaching that what did you think of me when you saw me? 100%. And then we kind of pull back the layers of what does that mean in black history? So what did that mean when you see a black person, particularly a young black dude with dreadlocks and earrings and a beard and tattoos, what kind of perceptions did you have in your mind and where did those come from? So I kind of play on that, that we kind of deconstruct what that means in a historical sense yeah. that people can start understanding, wow, you know, I'm seeing something different for the first time in my life. Yes. Does it raise challenges? Of course. You know, I don't fit what it looks like to be a typical prof. Yeah. I'm not an old white dude, particularly in history courses. I'm not an <laughs> old white dude, you know, that's not who I am, but we're starting to see spaces being built, yeah. not by institutions themselves, but by particular individuals, the intellect, the intellect yeah. and what you know. Because at the end of the day, you know, you might see what you see on the surface, but at the end of the day, yeah, I have that book. Yeah, I have publications. Yeah, look at my CV. Look at my resume. Look what I've accomplished, so, particularly in such a small space of time. So talking about the book, let's let's wrap this up a little bit, but let's give you a chance to maybe tell our listeners a little bit about your book and maybe give you an opportunity to drop a little bit about yourself Buy my book. Just, just buy it. Um, just buy it, please. Uh, no, it is plain. So the book was a labor of love. I never did the book for money. Yeah. I never did the book for notoriety. And to this day, people still get on me to say, you know what, you know, Christopher, how can we don't plug your book anymore? I only did one, you know, book launch. It was in Ottawa. It wasn't even in the GTA. Just, it's not for me. The book, as I said, the book was, for lack of a better term, a labor of love. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, my PhD and the topic itself completely shifted after my dad died. So I had a particular topic I was going to go to, but after he died, it became a narrative of his life and my mother's life. Okay. And so for me, it became an opportunity to showcase two individuals who are very important to me in a different kind of light and have it literally be somewhere for the rest of time or wow. until we burn books and nothing ever exists anymore. <laughs> so the book is called Flying Fish in the Great White North, The Autonomous Migration of Black Barbadians by, by Firmwood Publishing. It's available on Amazon. It's available online. And it's really a story that I think a lot of people can relate to because it particularly a lot of Canadians can relate to, North Americans can relate to, because it's a story of, of immigrant or newcomer success. Trials, tribulations. Trials and tribulations. Yeah. So my father was someone who, and it's very interesting where I am at now at the, I guess you can call it the height of academia, having a PhD and being a lecturer or professor, that he couldn't afford to finish school. Because at the time, 
it costs money to go to school. And so it's a journey of his life navigating those spaces and then going to England and then coming to Canada and building a life here. Same thing with my mother, you know, going to school in Barbados, then coming to Canada as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to see the parallels of their two lives and then what they came from to where I am now. And for folks reading that, you can kind of put yourself in that space too, because I think for a lot of Canadians, you know, second generation, third generation, our parents may not have told us. Yeah, we always want a different lens. Right? We got a we different lens. See. Yeah, our parents may not have told us their struggles, but we know those struggles are there. Yeah. And then when we become an adult, they may not have articulated to us in a certain way. Like you must go to school. You must be an engineer. You must blah, 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 blah. But then when you start peeling the layers of their story, they're like, oh, man, this is why you want me to push so hard. And that's been, you know, if I'm giving advice to anybody, a big drive for me is, if you understand your history yeah. and particularly how far people have gotten to the space that you are at not right now, you can understand how far you can push. Yeah. I didn't struggle growing up. Yeah. I wasn't hungry. My yeah. parents were. Yeah. I wasn't. So if they can get to where they are now to get me this space, the world's my oyster. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can do anything. And so that's really what the book is about. It's just a story of tying the individual to the history that what they've accomplished is a part of human history, not Canadian history, not Barbadian history, is a part of global, global history and human history. Yeah. And tiring this narrative to see, you know what, how individuals make up history, not just dates and wars and politicians. So that's a big push that I had for that book. And it was really a, a form of catharsis for me that, you know, some people deal with death in, the, in a certain way. I dealt with death in this way to just put everything in writing and to create and share a story that people can gravitate to. And I use my book in my classes. Um, I don't make my students buy the book, FYI. <laughs> I'm not that type of person. But I like to let them understand. I'm a source of revenue. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's that. <laughs> <laughs> that you can see yourself in history that even, and I teach a lot of non-history students. Again, I'm at a STEM university, University of Waterloo. A lot of people who aren't in, you know, the quote unquote history discipline, but they can start to understand how this impacts them as well and teaching them that individuals make up our society. And that's what I really wanted to do with the book. And it, and it becomes really an open book. I'm not a very open person, yeah. but literally it's an open book to my life. If people say, hey, what motivated you to become a professor? Read my book. Yeah. Just read the foreword. You know yeah. what I mean? That sounds <laughs> read like the introduction. Read, and I, yeah. I, I hope some of our listeners definitely pick it up. Um, so just to wrap it up for, for everyone that's that's been listening, um, some of the main takeaways that some of our, our listeners could take away from this this interview, um, I think, you know, the turns that you make in your career, um, the, the things that you have to persevere through. Um, are there three takeaways that you would say, what can our listeners take away from this? One, keep an open mind. Yeah. Two, be an opportunist. And when I say an opportunist, it kind of fits with having an open mind. See the world around you. Understand your transferable skills. I think this is a big thing that people don't get. You think you go to school and you learn something and that's it and you're supposed to be in this industry. There's a lot of transferable skills. Even when I'm looking at this podcast now, you folks have created an environment with transferable skills mm -hmm. and created a fantastic product, mm -hmm. right? So have an open mind being opportunist but at the same time you gotta work hard man yeah hard work you gotta work hard and you know you you said in your story i mean 
your nine to five is one thing, but you also had a your five, five to 11, 11 yeah. right? So regardless what that five to 11 is, it could be, you know what, We're if you drop want to... that quote on the, uh, on the <laughs> <link>. <laughs> Yo, you're nine to f- I said the real quotes, nine to five, five to 11 and 24 seven. So go. what I do is literally my nine to five, my five to 11, my 24 seven. When I do black history, black identity, it is my life. I step out of this room right now. I don't take off my blackness and turn into something else. This is my life. So I'm always what you call on all the time. And the one thing that I want folks to, to generally think about and generally understand is understand how this world works. Understand how systems work. That's why I really like this podcast. Understand how education systems work. Understand how financial systems work. Understand how everything works and then who you are and then how you can navigate it. So people go to school, think that, okay, I'm going to go to school and just write papers or do tests, write reports, and that's it. Great. But why are you doing it? Think outside of that spectrum. Yeah. Think outside of that. Why are you doing it? What's, what's the purpose? Yeah. For what? What are you contributing to? How do you navigate? I'm not saying you need to be in these spaces to change them, but once you figure out how to navigate the space, A, it's going to make your life a lot easier. I call it the, the, the KISS method that a lot of people know. Keep it simple, stupid. That you know, you're going to be much more efficient. You're going to know how to allocate X, Y, Z time. Because again, I'm a fitness guy. Yeah. So I'm always looking at, okay, you know, you can work really hard or work really smart. Yeah, I don't even like the term smart, but I'm going to use it for this for the sake right now. So understand why you're doing it, how you're doing it, why you're doing it. And then you can kind of figure out when you're done, okay, I did this for this reason. And these are the skills I'm going to pull out, not just a degree. Awesome. Awesome, buddy. Well, Thank you for joining us today, and and thank you to all the listeners for popping in. I, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hit me up on uh, at Doctor C S Taylor D R C S T A Y L O R on Twitter. Hit me up anytime if you need anything, any advice. Also, too, we're going to be taking a trip to Ghana. I'm taking my students to a trip to Ghana um, in February, February 2020. Hit me up. You can hit me up on Twitter through that. Send me a DM, and we can roll on that. And I'm I'm an approachable guy too. There you go. I'm approachable. <laughs> and he's taking me to Ghana too. <laughs> yeah, we're t- I'm taking everybody. Free trips. <laughs> See you guys. Thank you. Thank you.